Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture is Mark 8, 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Amen. Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. I echo what Bruce said. We are glad that you're here in 2023 in this new year, doing life together in in all the different ways that we do as a church. Recently, a uh, member of Redeemer Lincoln Square um, was describing to me a a pretty hard situation just a couple months ago, and she was going on about um, just how hard it was, and at the end, there was this awkward pause. And I, I think she was waiting for me to respond, but I was waiting for her to continue. And as the awkward pause got longer, I eventually uh, felt to fill the, the space. I said, it sounds like this has been really hard for you, right? And it was a terrible question. The minute I asked it, I was like, wait, she just said that. What? That's not the right way. That's not showing that I'm listening and, and, and really getting involved. But it was just, it, it just felt, the presence felt so... Um, heavy. I didn't know what else to say. And the truth is, to ask good questions, it's actually, there's a skill and ability given to be able to do that. It's not easy. But I believe, as as Bruce said earlier, we are a church, one of our values, and I think it's a unique value. I don't know other churches that say this, that we do value questions and those who ask them. That means we care about curiosity. We want you to be curious people, not just because researchers show that curiosity uh, it makes people less reactive, and it makes us more attentive, and it means actually they found curiosity. People who are curious have more brain activity going on. It's not, there's, yes, there's an, a benefit to that, 
But I would argue that when, you're, when we're curious, asking great questions uh, is a way to be present with people. It's a way to give them what they need and what they want. Now, as a New Yorker, I believe that our sense of a lack of time is the enemy to this process. Because how do we have time to ask people or be perceptive or, or give them good questions if we're so focused on our own needs and, 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 and what we need to get for ourselves? But this is one of our values, and I believe it's something that has to be developed. It's a skill that has to be learned. And so what I want to do for this uh, next series that we're about to start is I would like to look at mostly the book of Mark, but also Matthew as well. We're going to look at questions Jesus asked to give us guidance to how to do this, how to give people questions that they need and, the, and questions that they, that they want. And um, we're going to do that. We're going to start this series today, and we're going to start with this particular passage, and we're going to break this passage down in three ways. Today we're going to look at who Jesus is, what does it mean, and why it matters. So for our text, we're going to look at who Jesus is, what does it mean, and then why does it matter. So first, who is he? And look at for the first verse. Jesus is in a region about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. This is probably the furthest, it's one of the furthest places away of his ministry. And I think he purposely takes his disciples there because this area was a known area where it was rumored that the Greek god Pan and the goddess Roma uh, was born and they lived. But it was, it was more or less the intersection of multiple faiths and, and multiple religions. And it's in this space that he asks his disciples, what do other people think about me? And what do you think about me? Similarly, New York City is a, a, a much today, it is known to be a place where it's an intersection of multiple faiths, multiple views. This is a place where you're, even, you're looked at as sophisticated if you uh, say that you're seeking. Right? You're allowed to even say that. As long as you don't ever say you found, as long, you can say that you're seeking. And um, you can think of Jesus as, as a teacher or even as a prophet. That's actually acceptable in, in our culture, it, it, which is interesting because that's exactly what other people thought who Jesus was. When, when he asked the disciples, who do, you, do they say I am? Look at verse 29. They said, oh, some say you're John the Baptist. That means you're a great teacher. Some think that you're Elijah. That means you're a great prophet. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't accept those answers and say, yep, that's who I am. Yep, that's right. Nope. He goes on in verse 29 and then says, okay, but who do you think I am? What do you, who do you say that I am? And so I want to pause here for a second for us today. I want to take the same questions, ask the disciples, it's being asked of us as well. That every person at some place in their life has to really ask themselves, okay, who do I really think who Jesus is? In other words, we don't get to define who he is. He's saying, I, I'm going to create a space where, you get, where I'm asking you a good question, but really I want to know what you think I am. And he actually gives us some help here. Look at verse 31. He says, hey, I, you can't just come up with anything. I'm actually the son of man. And the son of man is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, that the son of man is, is divine. He's not, yes, he's a, a teacher. Yes, he's a, a prophet, but he's, he, there's divinity here. Look, if you go to, all the way down to the last verse, this person, the Son of Man, is going to come again with glory and angels. So there's something here that is not similar to something else that we, other people that we've seen. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you can't lump me in with just John the Baptist. You can't lump me in as other prophets or other teachers. You can't just say, oh, he's just like Muhammad, Buddha, uh, any other great, you know, Gandhi, any other great teacher. He's not saying that. 
Those individuals have all said, when they started their faiths, major faiths, they said, hey, the solution's over here, and they pointed to that. Only Jesus has the audacity to say, I am the solution. And so for us today, I don't think that you can say you really believe in Jesus if you say, I just believe in his teachings. I don't think you can really say you believe in Jesus if you say, I just believe in his morals. I don't think you can really say you believe in Jesus I just believe in his example. There are a lot of people today that say there are Christians because they believe in his morals, his teachings, and his, uh, his example. But the disciples had that for eight some chapters. We're in chapter eight right now. And Jesus is saying right here, that's not enough. That can't be enough. And so you say, okay, what else does it have to be? Well, verse 29 says, when Peter answered, you are the Messiah, it's then that Jesus says, don't tell anybody else. And the word Messiah is a a Hebrew word, but the Greek word used here is Christos, which means Savior. So Jesus is saying, there's some element of who I am that is Savior. So my question back to us, right, for questions asked is, is he your Savior? Who's your Savior? What does that look like? And by the way, I'm not asking for a Sunday school answer. I'm not asking for some pat answer here. I'm asking functionally, practically, when the rubber meets the road, when things are going bad, when things are not going well, when you have nothing else, when things are bleak, what do you turn to? Whom do you turn to? Right? I want to know at the end of the day, is Jesus the center of your life or is he like an advisor to your life? Is he on the periphery or in the middle? Because I believe that every other question that we're going to ask in the world, questions about purpose and meaning and identity, all those questions boil down to this one, who do you say that I am? But we have to be careful because he won't accept, it's not just any savior, right? It can't be just any savior. At first glance, you think Peter gives the good Sunday school answer, Jesus. You think he's giving the right answer, but actually, look closely. When Jesus goes on, in the next verse, in verse 31, he begins to teach them about who he is. And what does he say? He goes, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and uh, that he must be killed and he must die. Twice he says, I must die, which is an emphatic statement in, in this um, genre. And I think and the key word is must. I was thinking about this past week. The word must in this space might be the most important word in the entire Bible and how it's functioning. Because no, modern people do not understand why Jesus must suffer. But I would argue people back then didn't understand why Jesus must suffer. Because look at what Peter does. Peter turns around. This is the next verse, verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, that's Jesus. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The word rebuke here, by the way, is the same word that Jesus used in earlier chapters about rebuking demons which is important because that means Peter thinks what Jesus is saying in his description of, of being a savior is demonic. That's how different Peter's savior is from Jesus' idea of savior. Why, is that, why, why are they so different? It's because Peter's savior was a winner. Peter grew up his whole life thinking being a savior, the savior that's going to come is going to be a political savior that rescues the Jewish people from the, the Roman oppressive rule. He wins by being a political savior. And Jesus shows up and says, that's not how I'm going to save. That's not how I save. In other words, I believe for every single one of us in this room, he's not the savior we really want. But he's the savior that we need. And I've been noticing this, let me put it this way. More and more, have you seen this? That uh, when we go to movies, when we go to get coffee, when we hang out with each other, if you have one of those, smart, one of those smartphone thingies, 
there's these apps on them that called, uh, there's a Venmo app or a Cash app, and now whenever we go do things together, it's so easy to pay each other back. And so, hey, if we go out to get coffee, I'll pay you for coffee. If we go out to get a movie, hey, I'll pay you for that movie ticket. And let's be honest, on one level, it's just great and easy to, to transfer funds. But I wonder if, maybe sub, even subconsciously, the reason why we love the, those kind of apps is because then we never have to owe anyone anything. Uh, there's been articles written about this, how, how Venmo is killing generosity, it's killing kindness, because we never have to a- ever do each other favors. Well, why is that? Because we, we don't like that. I think somewhere in us, we don't like the idea that we have to owe anyone anything. That we don't have to actually have it, we don't have to feel like there's actually a debt. And I actually think that's the reason why Peter couldn't fathom why Jesus must die. And it's the same reason why we can't, because at some level, he's unable to really f- actualize or realize the depth of the debt that he has. In other words, put it this way, Peter thought whatever his personal debt that he owed paled in comparison to the debt that the Roman rulers owed him. In other words, he thought the real savior he needed was not for his own personal debt. He needed a savior to, to fix the debt the Romans owed to him. And this is, how, this is, this is by the way, for how we all work, that at the end of the day, we're more concerned about the oppression other people have given to us than the oppression that we've done for other, to other people. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. And I think, therefore, like Peter, we think our bigger problem is we need to be liberated by, in Peter's case, a political oppression. And yet Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm a savior, but not the kind that you think that you need, because I've come to liberate you from the cosmic oppression. I'll I'll put it this way. Um, Everybody in this room, you're owed, here's what you're owed, dignity, worth, love, care, and respect. I believe everybody in this room is owed that, and I actually also believe everybody in this room hasn't been given that to the degree that you deserve from others. You can probably think of individuals who haven't given you what you're owed. But I would also believe that everyone in this room has not given dignity and worth and love and honor and service and care to other people to the degree that they deserve and need. Which, by the way, is the same reason why you're not getting it. Because we're all in the same boat here. The reason why you're not getting it is because you're not giving it. And so you have all these hardships, all this hurt, because every self-focused thought, every self-centered action is ripping at the fabric of reality on you and from you, creating debts that we all owe. And Jesus shows up here and says, that's your real problem. And yet how he goes about it is completely differently than how we would go about it. And actually, that's, that, that upside-down nature is actually why it works. See, we think, how do you win? You win by taking, by conquering, by getting. Jesus shows up by losing, by giving, by sending. See, when the world says, grab, take, collect, Jesus says, here, take, offer, release. And by doing that, he rewrites the narratives of all of our lives. And so my question still stands for us is, do you believe in him as this Savior? 
See, this is, this is what's crazy. Jesus is not asking you just to believe in him as Savior, because, you, you know, Peter had that. You can believe in Jesus as any kind of Savior, but that's not enough. Some of us in this room love the idea of Jesus as our Savior away from our troubles and hurts and cares. The problem with that is everybody in the room has troubles and hurts and cares. When that happens, if that's the kind of Savior we want from him and it doesn't happen, then that's why we give up. That's why we go away. And yet the Bible's filled with people it's, that, are, that have troubles and hurts and cares, and yet it's through those that Jesus saves. And I've been, you know, I'm, I'm only in my 40s, but the longer I live, the more and more I realize I don't really understand what it means for him to be my Savior. And it's almost like a journey of learning again and again and again what that looks like. And so I would argue, I would ask you, who is Jesus as Savior in your life? If you don't believe him at all, then, then you have to ask the first question we already asked, which is then what is being your Savior in your life? But if he, you say he is, is he functioning the way that he actually is a Savior or just the way that you want him to be? Because you can't just invite him into just this little part of your life and not that part. That'd be like trying to invite, that'd be like trying to take a bunch, the whole ocean and bottle it up and hold it in, in your pocket. It's like trying to contain infinity in a Coke bottle. That's not who he is. Point one, he's the Savior. That's who he is. Now, secondly, what does that mean? So what? If he's a Savior, what does it mean? Well, what I love about our passage is Jesus, the minute that his, who he is, he is, his identity is revealed, he doesn't leave us there. He goes on and, and starts telling us now how to live it out. In other words, he connects belief with action. I think, for, I, I don't know what it is, I mean, if you want to get all philosophical, because of Plato and there's this idea of the forms and the, and the you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, the, the ideal and the forms and how it's acted out. We have this disconnect between uh, the cognitive and then our, our, the physical, but Jesus doesn't do that. He always believes what you think has to be applied out in action. This is, by the way, wh why do we not feel like we can ever change? It's because we never connect what we know we should do to what we act to actually do. It's not good enough to say, I know I need to exercise. You actually have to exercise. It's not good enough to say, hey, I know I need to sleep seven hours a night. You actually have to do it. So it's not good enough just to believe Jesus died on the cross. The question is, is what does that look like to live it out? And he tells us, look at verse 34. He called the crowd, including the disciples, and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. Which means at some level, what he's trying to say here, read that again. Right? At some level, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses. Cross-bearing has two aspects. There's a denying and putting off, and there's a picking up and taking on. I want to quickly look at both of those real quick. Number one, uh, a denying and putting down. What's being denied? It says themselves, which if you want to personalize that, it means yourself. What is it about yourself? Well, think of modern concepts of identity. What is the modern world? What does our world tell us? This is what it tells us. At the end of the day, one, one phrase, you are your own. That's what it means to be you. You are your, your own. You are actually on your own, which means at the end of the day, you have to create your own reality. At the end of the day, you have to uh, uh, be the author and perfecter of your own life. What you feel is real. You know, you have to, it's, it's up to us to choose that identity, which I, we've talked about this, that in past weeks, one of the reasons I think there's so much angst and, and uh, Worry is everybody's running around going, well, then who, am, who is the real me? What am I? And you have to find that identity. Choose your own reality. Choose your own adventure. And yet Christianity shows up and is different. The very first 
um, question in the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a, a catechism developed hundreds of years ago. This is the first question. Ready? What is your only comfort in life and death? It's a good question, right? What's your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you say, oh, I know what you're going to do, Michael. All right, the modern world says you need to, you know, pick your own adventure. I know what you're going to do. Just believe in Jesus. Just identify with Jesus. You know, I should love God and get my identity in Him. Right, right, right? Wrong. Because with our modern conception, if, you, if I'm telling you to do that, you're just going to keep doing the very thing that the modern world says, which is it's still up to you. You choose. You identify. You, you, you. And Christianity shows up and says, no, no, no. You can center on yourself by running away from God, but you can equally center on yourself and be about you, and, and you're at the very core by sticking around God as well. Right? You can run away like the prodigal God, but you can be an elder brother and staying with God and being just as lost. That I'm the good one, that I'm the nice one, that I'm the moral religious one. This is why I would argue many people in the world have given up on Christianity because they look at the hypocrisy. They look at people who say they're great and nice and kind, and then they do the opposite. Because you can be equally lost calling yourself a Christian. I think that's why the cross matters, because on the cross, it's in that space Jesus loses his identity. He's decreated. He loses certainty. He loses reality for you. You go, why does that matter? Because not when that's, that's a thought, that's a cognitive idea, whatever. Nothing happens. But when that becomes an experiential, emotional, mental, but physical, but real truth in your bones, that your worth and significance is not what you've done, that your worth and significance is not based on how good you were or some moral checkboxes, but because of just the nature of as what uh, Bruce said earlier, that because of the nature of who you are, that you, the image of God it resides in you, and you're loved because you're loved because you're loved. When you let that actually permeate the core of who you are, that reprograms you and changes your identity. The identity is no longer achieved, it's received, it's, it's accepted, it's held on to. You get a new sense of security, a new sense of center, a new sense of reality. So that's why we can say, the modern world says, you are your own, and that's why the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, you are not your own. And there's so much love and joy and beauty and security and safety in that. So first step, what does it mean when Jesus says put off? It means putting off that old version the way that we like to think we define ourselves, and putting on the idea that you will be most real, most laying into your createdness, most secure in your humanity when you identify with him and who he says we are. Loved by him, child of God, son of the Most High King, daughter of the Most High King, and everything else we put down. That's what putting down is, number one. Okay, now number two. It says there's something about a cross that takes up. And I don't know about you, maybe because I grew up in a, 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 a Christian home. You know, my father was a pastor, and so you always hear these jokes about, you know, I'm just burying my cross. And people always, you know, talk about being friends with me. I'm just burying my cross, you know, being friends with Mike. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and with, because most people interpret this passage that bearing your cross means it's a heavy burden. And I think that there's some truth to that. 
But it's not just a heavy burden. Jesus just wasn't just carrying a heavy burden. He was carrying somebody else's burden. So that means that some tr- there's some truth about whatever it means to bear a cross means you're bearing not just your own burden. You're bearing somebody else's. And you try to put it a different way. If the core of Christianity is a man who lives and dies for, some, for others, right? That's the core of Christianity. Jesus Christ who lives and dies for others. And you place him at the core of who you are. That means at some level, that means you have to live and die for others. That's what it means to bear your, a cross. It's you're bearing somebody else's burdens. And by the way, other people's burdens can be so many. It can be physical, as we prayed about in our prayer of lament. Tangible, right? Homelessness, housing insecurity. It can be emotional, spiritual, financial, moral. I mean, there's all different types of burdens. Which, by the way, all of which Jesus bore for us. And when we realize that, then that's what allows us to go off and bear those burdens. And that's why, at some level, to bear crosses means to put to death your expectations about how your life's supposed to go and what's supposed to happen in your life and how it's supposed to happen and the timeline by which you think it should happen. Please, and I, was, I chuckled to myself as I was thinking about this. If this is true, then what, <laughs> at some level, if he's really your savior, you can't tell him how you think your salvation should go. You know, at some level, if he's really your savior, you can't tell him the order and plan for your, how your life is supposed to be. See, that's exactly what I'm doing. When I say I need this, I need people to like me, and I need to have comfort, and I don't want anything bad to happen to me, you're essentially saying in that space, I know exactly how you're supposed to save me. That's not cross-bearing. To take up your cross is to stop saying, you know how my life should go. And here's the mystery. The mystery is this, is that when you actually do that, there's so much freedom. There's a, I would argue there's a brittleness to our sense of security and identity. When we say we know exactly how it's, going to, not how it's supposed to go, and then it doesn't go that way, and then so everything falls apart. I think it's a lot more secure to say, I don't know how my life's going to go. I have no idea, but I know him. And that gives you, makes you flexible and malleable and able to bend and flex for any situation that come what may will happen. That when we say, when you clutch your own life and say, this is how it must go, you break. But when you say, I'm saved by grace, life is a gift, he gives to you, so now I can give to others. It's pretty amazing. So right now, if you're afraid to give your life, first you have to see what he did for you. And my question then before we move on is, is will you, now we take that kind of cross. Not just some burden about being Michael's friend. But just taking up the cross of other people's burdens because of what he's already done. That's why Jesus is saying, uh, you could gain the world, friends. This is the truth. You could gain the world. You could have every creature comfort. You could have everything you've ever wanted. And if you don't have him, what do you really have? But it works in reverse, too. Every creature comfort, everything that you've ever wanted, you don't actually ever get. You have nothing, but you have him. You have what you need. All right, last point. Why does all this matter? Uh, if he's the Savior, and the way to live in light of he's a savior. There's things that we put off about our identity, and there's things that we put on about our crosses. Lastly, how do we know if we can trust him in this? How do we know this is the right way to live? Because there's a lot of people, this is what I love about New York, every subway car I sit in, I'm being challenged about how I live my life. Because there are other people who are obviously clearly living their lives differently than I am. I love that. That's why you should live in this town, because it's a daily wake-up call to say, what do I believe in, and do I really believe it? 
And so we have to ask ourselves, well, I can only believe it if, I, if it's real. I don't even know if it's real if I can trust him. So the question is, how can I trust him? Well, Jesus can read your mind. And so in verse 34, he says, the way you're going to be able to do this is if you follow me. Right? Only after you deny and, and take on the cross, he says, follow me. I love hiking, um, and I like to go hiking sometimes with friends. And so somebody who has a compass and a map, you know, when they say follow me, I want to know that they know what they're doing. I want to know they can use a compass and a map. Because there's a lot of trust that goes into those other people that you're like, okay, you know where you're going, so I'm going to follow. This is why if you have a friend who gets lost in like a department store or in their home, don't go hiking with them. That's not going to be helpful. You don't, you're not going to have confidence that they're going to know what they're doing. You, so you need to know, to have confidence to, to follow someone, you have to know that they're trustworthy. So how do we know Jesus is trustworthy? I think the answer for us, interestingly, is actually back in verse 34, when he calls um, Peter satanic. Actually, he doesn't call Peter satanic quite. He's actually calling uh, Peter's idea about him satanic which is, by the way, the very thing that he, Peter already said to him when he called him demonic. You say, okay, well, how's that comforting? How's that actually makes Jesus trustworthy? Because this, Peter is probably my most favorite character in the Bible because he's so assured, he's so confident, and he's always wrong. <laughs> I really re- I resonate with that kind of person because there's, there's zeal and there's a surety, and he's way off. And so he's right here saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. He's the first person, by the way, in the entire Bible to call Jesus Messiah. And when Jesus gets arrested, he's also the first person, not once, not twice, but three times to say, I don't know who that guy is. Which is crazy if you think about it. I know who God, which, you know, by the way, this is proof why you can say you're, you know, Jesus' Savior and still not live in line with it. It's also proof why you can say that you believe, you can confess with your lips, but not acknowledge him with your heart. It's why you have a lot of duplicity. It's why you have a lot of people who say they're Christians, but, you know, they don't live in line with what they say. Because Peter does that. Not once, not twice, but three times. That means you can think he's Savior and still not get that he's Jesus. And what Jesus says he is. So, you know, so the answer, right, the way this story should go is Jesus, I mean, Peter's kicked out. Not once, not twice, not three. All right, you don't get this. You're out. But that's not what happens. I think it's fascinating. I think everybody in this room has probably denied Jesus at least three times too. And so we should be out too. And yet when Jesus shows up at the end of the book of John, after the resurrection, the f- one of the first things Jesus does is he finds Peter, looks at him and says, feed my sheep. He looks at him and says, lead my people. Which is crazy if you think about it, because he's, he's the one who's denied Jesus the most. And yet that's where I think is the beauty, and I think this is where the trust, the, how do you know you can trust Jesus? You can trust Jesus because look at how he restores Peter. Look at how he meets Peter. In other words, your failures don't mean you're out. Actually, your failures are proof that you can actually finally come further in. Why? Because the mystery of grace is this, is that when you failed the most, and some of you have failed the most, some of you don't know you failed but when you realize that you failed the most, that's the, the more you know that you failed, the more that you can repent and apologize for that, the more that you can receive and rest in his grace the most. That's when you feel his love the most. That's when you will trust him the most. 
That's what we have here. It's that when we feel, we will feel the most love from him when we feel he's restored us and loved us and stayed with us despite ourselves. In other words, you kind of almost need, I don't, I'm not saying go around and purposely fail. You already are, by the way. So just realize that you are and then rest in his love. That's what this is saying. That when you plunge your flaws into his grace, you, he will lift you right back up into life. And that's why I love Peter. Because he gets it and then he doesn't get it. And if he doesn't get it, but it gets in, then that allows us, even though when we don't get it, we, we get in too. If Peter can be the leader of the church, leading God's people, then that means every single one of us can be leaders as well. We can be part of the gospel movement. We can actually be part of his kingdom. Some of you are sitting here going, oh, I don't know enough. I, I don't know if I can, you know, do anything. Peter didn't know enough. I don't even think he knew fully the nature of who the Savior was. You don't either, and yet you can still live unto him. That's what's so beautiful. That's what's so great. You don't have to have all the right answers to every person in every situation to be a movement of change in their, those people's lives, to bear their burdens, to love them and serve them. You don't even have to actually fully understand Jesus. Folks, this is the difference in all their faiths and even our modern world. Here's how the world works. If you succeed, you're in. If you fail, you're out. And by the way, everybody to some level, because that's the paradigm, we all know secretly that we're not succeeding in some aspect of our life, so we all feel like failures. Christianity, though, says completely differently. When you fail, only then can you further see his love and for you. And that qualifies you to further come in. So will you. Will you allow him to be active in your life in this way? That all the mistakes and all the missteps, all that should be doing is to make you more qualified to accept Jesus Christ. So the only question then is, is will you let him? Will you accept him? Will we, will, we let, will we lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet? Only then can we be gloriously complete. Come be part of a gospel movement going forward. Accept him as he already accepts us. Please don't say, you know what? Here's what happens. We're going to leave these doors. We're going to say, you know what? If I just had a better father, if I just had a better job, if I just had a spouse or a better spouse, then I would actually have a better, happier life. That's still looking for other saviors, friends. At some level, sure, that might be nice, but that's other saviors. Follow him. Rest in him. Live changed lives. Bear burdens. You'll see change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we will lead curious lives. I pray that we would value questions and those who ask them. And that means in some level to value the questions we have and to feel comfortable to ask them but to develop a skill set where we do the same for other people. I pray that we would start this new year with that commitment to develop that, to not be afraid, to not say, oh, I'll, I'll figure it out once I know enough. Peter didn't have that, and we don't either. Let us be able to rest in the security of your love and service that fundamentally starts with applying and taking and accepting and experiencing the joy, wonder, and awe and love that comes from seeing your, the depth of care, the movement that you made to go through heaven and hell to get to us. Let us rest in that this new year, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. 
To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.